because I trip on them. So <laughs> this is a courtesy. <laughs> Well, first and foremost, good morning, everyone. Um, it is truly great to see you all. I don't mean that in a perfunctory or um, civil discourse way. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, actually, I missed you all last weekend. Um, I'm sure you noticed me not there. It's a big part of your weekend, and I acknowledge that. Um, I noticed. Okay. <laughs> Sitting in the front row. Yeah. Overachiever. Um, um, I, I was not here because I was actually on Memorial Day weekend going and visiting my father who lives on Whidbey Island. So um, I, while I missed you all, I was very happy we were there because we got to introduce him to that little one who he had never met before. Um, and that was a experience that truly lifted my heart. Um, while we were over there, something kind of interesting happened. Um, uh, my father lives, as I said, on Whidbey Island in the town of Oak Harbor, which um, has a, an interesting history. But uh, while we were there doing some shopping, we saw outside the, the local Safeway there a, a giant display crafted from uh, soda bottles that said, Go Navy. Um, and that, that caught our attention because, you know, it's, it was, you know, you could probably see it from space. It was huge. Um, and that, that, that raised some questions, you know, because Chelsea's not as familiar with it as I am. Um, and uh, Oak Harbor's a Navy town. There was a Navy base bit there, built there. Everything grew up around it. So... Um, it was, you know, the local businesses supporting the home team. You know, that's who was there. That, that same sign, Go Navy, might have a, a very different uh, connotation, say, in Berkeley, <laughs> where the Navy is not the home team. But, um, but there they, they were, you know, coming out in support of the people who were theirs. Um, and that was, that was sort of an interesting thing for me. Um, and I bring it up not just because uh, as a travel log, but... Um, because as I was preparing for the sermon, that event came back to me, and I was thinking about the the people that are ours, our our home teams, as it were. Because you know, we as people, that's that's such something that's in us. We we form groups, we we tribalize, you know, we we set ourselves up in these individual camps. Um, and one of the the complicated and interesting, and sometimes troubling parts about being a Christian is. Um, as an article of faith, this world is not our home. Um, I think in Hebrews 13, it sort of hints on that. It says, here we have no permanent city. Uh, we wait for the city that is coming. Uh, we're waiting for the restored Zion to come out of heaven, and that's our city. That's the one we're waiting for. Here we're kind of just making time. Um, and that doesn't mean we're not involved and we don't care. I mean, you know, a, a huge part of our goal here at the River Church is to be part of this community, to dig in roots, to, to plant fields, as it were, um, and love the people here, care about the people here. But ultimately, we're passing through. Um, and what's interesting, and again problematic about that, is that eventually, and at points, that comes out and the world realizes that we're not on the home team. That we are, in fact, something else, something different. Um, inconsistencies arise. Uh, occasionally there will come a time when there's a choice we can make that will make things easy and will make things get along and will make everything work or we'll please and obey God and 
if we do what we're supposed to and we obey God, there will be a friction. There will be a problem. There will be a, hey, I thought you were on the home team moment. What's going on here? Um, and there's a tension there, a conflict. And uh, I think ultimately we know, which we have to come down on the side of if we truly believe what uh, is in this book. But it, eventually the world will be able to tell. Uh, we'll be noticed as not part of the group. Um, and so I want to go back into what we talked about last week very briefly, not because it wasn't already uh, wonderfully covered by David Wells. Um, fun fact, we post previous sermons up on the uh, website, so if you miss something, like say you're out of town on Woodby Island, uh, you can go back and uh, catch up completely, which is a great benefit. Um, Oh, you see? You get paid for these advertisements. <laughs> no. Um, but, yeah, so I, I just want to go back over it really briefly just because I want us to have really fresh in our minds what we just left because uh, having that fresh in our minds I think will give us a full appreciation of what comes next and I think, as the text will demonstrate, it was very much in the minds of uh, Peter and John as they left the Sanhedrin the morning after. Um, so, you might recall their disciples, the apostles, are devoting themselves to the temple and to prayer and to the fellowship and breaking of bread. Um, and they're going to the temple, and Peter and John are coming in to the prayer meeting, and they see the man crippled from birth. They heal him in the name of Jesus. That gets everybody's attention, and Peter, having their attention, testifies to Christ. Uh, this causes a big hullabaloo. Guards round him up haul them off to prison. It's late in the afternoon and uh, politicians and priests go home early so they have to wait till next morning to get uh, questioned. And they get drugged before the Sanhedrin and they're interrogated. And this is an interesting scene. It's, it's a really fun one um, because it's quite dramatic when you think about it. I mean, the, the film version of this scene is really impressive. You know, you have the Sanhedrin building, you have the full assembly of the elders of the high priestly family, the high priest himself, everyone's there. Um, you know, this is high courtroom drama. And they, they interrogate them, you know, what, how did this happen? Why did this happen? And Peter tells them. And it's interesting. And, and I think David went and, uh, really went into this really well and talked about how this very concept erodes the power and authority of the Sanhedrin, um, which... Uh, historically is actually already eroded because the Romans have come in, the Romans have taken away the power of the death penalty from them. Um, they oversee everything. So you have this very ancient, very proud, very um, tradition-minded group of rulership that isn't completely in charge anymore and feels that loss of power keenly. And here come these guys to chip away at that a little bit more and a little bit more. And there's a lot of implication to everything that's happening in that room, you know, they're arrested, they're drug off, they're held overnight, they're hauled before them the next day. Everything about this setup displays the earthly power of the Sanhedrin. We can take you, we can keep you, we can question you. Um, and at a point that Peter's delivering this, delivering this sermon to them where he says, you know, you were the ones who did this, God raised up Christ. Um, they're metaphorically certainly standing and also quite possibly physically standing exactly where Jesus was when he stood before the Sanhedrin the morning he was crucified. Um, you know, the stage one, get hauled before the Sanhedrin, get some questions asked. Stage two, elevated to Herod and Pilate. Stage three is the hill outside they call Golgotha. So 
there's an implication here as they stand in this room. There's a context hanging over the questioning that it might be easy to miss um, if you're not the one who might be dead before the sun goes down today. Um, And that's significant. Everything in here is speaking to their power, their authority, the strength they have. And Peter delivers his sermon and the Sanhedrin eventually gives their response. Do not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Uh, the Supreme Court has spoken <laughs> on this one um, in, in ancient Judea. Um, and these words, they're, they're a drawn sword just stabbed into the ground in front of the apostles. Do not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And it's every bit as subtle as that. Um, there's a, a story that the Greek historian Herodotus recorded uh, in his book, Histories. And it, it's sort of interesting. There's a a ruler, a tyrant, who seized power in a city. And he has a friend who's also a tyrant in a distant city. And the first tyrant is younger at this. And so he sends a messenger to this older, more established, more successful tyrant and wants to know, how do I keep power? How do I do this? How do I make um, this thing work for me? And when the messenger gets there, the older tyrant receives the messenger. But instead of answering his questions, he says, let's go outside, let's go for a walk. And so they're walking through the field a uh, wheat field, as it happens, and the tyrant has a stick in his hand, and they're just walking, and he's shooting the breeze with them, but not answering his question. And as they go, every time he sees a tall sheaf of wheat, a big one, one of the really good ones, he just thwacks it with the stick and knocks it down. And they keep walking, and they keep walking, and every time there's something that sticks out, one of the big sheaves of wheat that's going to yield a great harvest, flaps it down. Um, and eventually he sends the servant off without answering any of his questions. And he goes back to his master and says, I'm sorry, master, man, you sent me to is insane. I have no idea he didn't answer my questions. But the first tyrant understood the implication. Um, There was a a lesson in the wheat field, and it was that uh, anything higher than you needs to be brought down. Anything that might be great needs to be strangled in its grave before it becomes a threat. Um, I think modern game theorists call this tall poppy syndrome. But the, the idea and the, the analog here is that there are certain things that disrupt business as usual, things that can become problems. Um, and far too often the rulers of the world, then and now, look on the spread of the gospel. And rather than rejoicing with us, see a problem, see a disruption to the system, see something that's going to pop up and be an issue, and the easy answer is take a stick to it. Now, the, the, the takeaway, and we see this all throughout the book of Acts, is that faithful, zealously pursued witness invariably becomes an offense to the world. Uh, we can and should be loving, we will (laughs) time and target our messages appropriately um, and thoughtfully. Um, But if we are truthful to the mission we have been given, somebody can, will, must get upset. Um, We don't want that. We don't seek it. We don't thumb our noses at them purely for the joy of upsetting others, no matter how tempting it might be. (laughs) But that can and will happen. Um, the Bible even specifically says um, in this world we'll have trouble that we will be hated for this and they will attempt to kill us for this. And 
uh, especially fun is in John 16.2. Not only will they attempt to kill us, they will feel righteous about it. That's the other thing. Uh, they, John 16.2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Uh, we see that especially, or easily, I should say, in the early Jewish persecutions of the church. You know, there's this break with tradition, and um, we, we have to get back to the true worship of God, and this, this heresy must be suppressed. Uh, in the upcoming Roman persecution of the church, uh, one of the interesting historical elements was the, the primary reason given for oppressing the church was that they would not pray to the local gods of the city, and if you don't pray to the god of the city, the god won't protect the city. Therefore, you're kind of trying to destroy the city if you're not praying to the gods that protect it. Um, so, and this extends into the modern day. Um, this is a great country for religious freedom. Uh, we're super blessed. Um, worldwide, there are places where people are still feeling righteous and doing the work of God for killing people who profess the faith that we share. Um, and so, the apostles are given an offer uh, an offer that we can extend and imply to the modern day, and I think to some extent still stands. The world has said, do not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, and we'll leave you alone. Uh, I think that offer is still on the table, and we all have the luxury of taking it. You can be part of the home team if you choose to be. Um, you might even be allowed to go to church on Sundays as long as you don't talk about it. Um, as long as it doesn't affect the way you live your life, the decisions you make, um, or make anybody feel weird. You have that choice. Uh, when I reflect on things like this, it's heavy. It's draining. Um, I look at the full assemblage of the world arrayed against us, and I feel inadequate to the task of addressing that. Um, and the implication then becomes, well, how will we respond to this? This is These are the terms the Sanhedrin has laid out before us. Do not teach or speak at all in the name of Jesus. So, uh, but once again, we are not left wondering what we ought to do. We can see how the apostles responded to this very challenge. And so we'll be reading, picking up right where we left off in the book of Acts, chapter 4. Specifically, verses 23 through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
So there's our answer. Um, and there's a lot in there. And it's worth reflecting on what the apostles said, the primacy of their thought process, and, and how it turned out. The, the first thing that they do is they get back together. Peter and John are by themselves. They're outnumbered. They're outgunned. They're surrounded by enemies. And when they're free, they immediately join back together with the others. Um, there's actually um, a, a great word usage thing in here that I, I learned from Michael because um, he did some digging into this himself. And when it says they, they went back together with their friends, the, the, the exact translation is they went to their own. Um, the, you know, there's a, a connotation of the people they belonged to. So it wasn't Peter against the world, John against the world. It was the church together, uh, which, harkening back a few weeks, the question was asked in the sermon, are we together? Um, and so the first bit of strength we can draw from this is, it's true, you're not part of the home team but you are part of a team. And if you flip to the back of the book, it's the winning team. So that's a good place to be. Um, But what did they do? They got together and then they worshipped. They prayed. They lifted up to God who God is. Uh, In those words, they, they talk about through the mouth of your servant David. You know, God is the one who wrote this Bible. People may have put the pen to paper, but God is speaking. They call him, they acknowledge that he's the creator, that he's the king, that he's the sovereign, that he made the world and all the things in it, including the authority structures that think they can stop the word of God. Um, you know, Peter draws a connection. You know, if if the, the quote that Peter was giving sounded familiar, that's because that's Psalm 2. That's what we were just reading. Peter talks about and connects it and says, you know, They talk about the nations and the rulers assembling. And here in the city of Jerusalem, you had the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities and the peoples of both all coming together, all raging against God's anointed one, Jesus, trying to stop him, trying to rebel against the universe's rightful authority. And how does God respond to that? God laughs at them. God holds them in derision. He is deeply unimpressed uh, at the the affectations of power and authority of created things. What does he say? He, he, he says, as for me, I have put my king on Zion. And he responds to this, not, not bored, not disinterested, but with wrath and fury and advises them, rethink what you're doing against my servant because it won't end well for you. Um, And then the psalm ends with a blessing. Blessed are those who take refuge in him, uh, which is not an empty promise. God does not make those. And hopefully that is where we fit into this. And so the apostles say, look upon their threats. Uh, They don't start here, which is interesting. I think when when something terrible happens to us, we say, God, look upon these threats. (laughs) Uh, Help me. Let's solve this. Um, but they don't. They don't start there. They don't ignore it, but they don't start there. They say, God, this is who you are. This is what you've done. This is what you've said you will do. And then they bring the issue to him. And I think that's especially relevant because 
your heart when you pray the prayer about your problems is a very different heart if you start worshiping by worshiping God, by saying, this is who you are. Uh, and it changes everything. When David made, made a great point uh, last sermon when he, he sort of harped on the concept of where your security comes from in the sense that we have the Sanhedrin holding on to this power, wanting to be part, have that authority, um, and the, the church leaning on Jesus. And the question then becomes, you know, where, where is your power? Where is your security? And, and the Bible talks about this over and over. Uh, it's very hard to internalize and harder to live out. But if Jesus is the source of your security and not your money, you can make the ethical calls in life that might cost you your job or any other number of things like that. Uh, Or opening your mouth and witnessing when it might cost you everything. In Matthew uh, chapter 10, 26 through 31, Jesus says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. If you're not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Um, in John 15, Jesus, uh, 18 through 21, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute also you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. This this isn't about us. The world is rebelling against its rightful master and to some extent we're caught in the crossfire because we choose to be there because uh, it's a glorious place to be. We... Fear is a weapon to paralyze witness and Worship of God is the cure to that fear. Worship creates witness when done intentionally because it gives us the power, the mindset, the the intellectual framework for realizing that what can be done to us by those who pretend true power pales in comparison to the power God has reserved for himself and has promised in his due time to use to save us. The, uh, so they worship. There are these threats and they worship. They pray. They lift up God's name. They recite the scriptures together. Exactly what in theory we're doing here every week. And the room is shaken. Um, uh, 
I, I think in most of our worship services, if the room shakes, it has to do more with the audiovisual equipment. But um, it's still a good thing. But, and, and it says that and they, the, the witness continues after this. They don't stop. The story doesn't end here. We're here in this room today because those men did not take that deal, did not stop speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. Um, and we have that same challenge before us now. Here we are gathered together, faced with perhaps less imminent threats, um, but that does not mean they're not there. And the same option of staying silent or pressing onward. It's also worth noting that it says then they were all filled with the Spirit. Um, at the very end of that, that verse there. And that's noteworthy uh, theologically because we know Peter uh, was filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which means you can be filled with the Spirit multiple times. Uh, it's an ongoing process. And that's significant because when the weight of this world, when the oppression, when the aligned forces of absolutely everything is against us and we feel drained, we know we can come to God and worship him and be filled again. Um, you know, when we are drained by circumstances and events, we must worship with all our hearts and we will be filled up again. And if need be, the room will shake and amazing things can happen because God's purpose cannot and will not be thwarted. And it's wonderful to get to be a part of that. It will happen with or without us. And I would like to be there to see that. Um, we have a discipleship group that uh, some of us get together and go to, and that's been a, a huge blessing for me um, in a lot of ways. And one of the things we've been focusing on recently that I just want to highlight here at, at the end, um, it's in First Colossians, or I'm sorry, Colossians 1, uh, 15 through 20. And it's, it's a called the Christology, it's just, it's, it's talking about who Christ is, his character, his attributes, his accomplishments. And when I think of the opposition to our mission, it helps to focus on the mission, on what we are doing, on who we are serving. And it says of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is the God we serve. Uh, he is preeminent above all things, great and powerful, and the things assembled against him and against us by extension are nothing before that. And by stopping to acknowledge that and praising him and his works, uh, we find strength to continue on. And so I urge all of us to do that um, here together, not alone because we're not alone. And that's, I suppose, why I'm so grateful to be here today with all of you because that's something I need. Um, 
at the very least weekly, and <laughs> if sometimes more than that. So thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for worshiping with me. Um, Michael, turn over to you.